Amen. Um, we've been, of course, in the Upper Room Discourse. We've been in John since September 17th. Um, this September 17th, well, the 16th, we're going to celebrate our first year anniversary. And so um, we're, we're, we're a little under one year old. Um, and we've been going through the book of John um, for a good minute. Now we've gotten to an interesting point, and what, what I'm going to talk about today just reminds me of, of years ago. I, you know, I've had, I've had a lot of people pray for me at some strategic times in my life. Um, I remember um, when, um, when I was in high school, and the, 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 my, my high school sweetheart um, had gotten pregnant, and my, my mom and pops were praying for me, and she had ended up getting an abortion, and my mom and pops prayed for me during that, during that particular time in my life. When I went to college and I was on drugs and, and, um, and, and, and hanging with, my, with the fraternity that I was with at the time and, and getting injured online, trying to become a rock of the line, my mom and pops um, were praying for me. When I, when, when I got my call to the ministry, um, my, my mom prayed for me to make sure that I would be pure as a minister of the gospel. They, they, I mean, uh, I've had leaders who discipled me over different times of my life, and I've had about five major mentors that have poured strategically into my life over the past 14 years. And, and, they, and they prayed for me, and their prayers, I've, I've sensed the, 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 the feel of their prayer. I've sensed the fact that God has come through uniquely through their lives. And in particular times in my life, I've had people that prayed for me. I believe that God sovereignly and providentially used their prayers to push me, to push me to different areas of life. My brother, he, I remember him praying for me in high school, telling me that I'd never go back to D.C. again. I mean, I had people praying for me in strategic times of my life. But, but I, I declare to you today that, that as I've gotten into John 17, I've had a lot of people pray for me. But I've never had anybody pray for me like this. Jesus prays for his people in a way that no one on earth can pray for you. Jesus Christ gets on his knees right before he's about to be betrayed, and he begins to pray. And, I, I, I mean, I, I've read the upper room, this, this, this part, what's called the so-called high priestly prayer, which we're going to talk about the fact that it's way more than a high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer is only one aspect of it. But I'm blown away by this prayer because it's Jesus praying. Now, now why, why does it matter whether or not Jesus praying? Well, I remember when Lazarus was about to come out of his tomb, and, and Jesus looked up to heaven. He says, Father, you hear me every time I pray. That's powerful. Because Jesus is praying here, and the Father hears everything that Jesus prays, because Jesus prays at all times in concert with the Father's will, no matter what he's feeling. Jesus prayed a bunch of times, I'm pretty sure. It was times that he went away by himself to pray. It was times that he went a little bit further ahead of the disciples and prayed. And they probably heard a lot of his prayers, but I doubt if any of his prayers were quite like this. The night before he even picked his disciples, he prayed all night. I still don't think it was like this. This prayer is the pinnacle and the benchmark of what Christianity is supposed to be because this prayer represents a vision. This prayer represents a vision or a dream of Jesus. Jesus goes to the Father before his throne as if the throne of God is a blank check. And he goes before the Father and he begins to pray and he begins to ask for what he already knows the Father wants. However, he knows that what the Father wants many times is moved and birthed through prayer. See, we don't announce to God and tell God uh, what to do in prayer. Prayer is merely our alignment with his will. Now, God is already going to do it. The question is, will we pray to get on the same page as him, and he uses our needs as a birth place for his will to happen? Are you with me? So it's a balance of the sovereignty of God with the responsibility of man. Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean we're not supposed to pray. See, many people say, well, God is sovereign. He's going to do what he want to do. I ain't going to pray nothing. Well, you won't see anything happen because he, his sovereignty is not in bondage to our prayer, but he uses our prayer to birth forth his sovereignty. Are you with me? And so right here in this passage, he does, he, he does some beastly praying, some meaty stuff, and some stuff that really what he does is he, he takes John... Uh, capsulizes this beautifully, beautifully. From chapter 1 of chapter, to chapter 16 of John, Jesus prays his whole ministry in this passage. You'll see his whole ministry from chapter 1 to chapter 16 
in this prayer time, I'd like to talk about today the high priestly prayer, the desire of Jesus. The desire of Jesus. This, this prayer is going to lay out what Jesus Christ's desires are. Look at verse 1, verse by verse. Y'all still with me? Verse 1, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, filled, he, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, you whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me or gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. <laughs> I want us to kind of put ourselves in the positions of the disciples. The disciples are sitting here, and they at one time asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus right here, he's about to be betrayed by one of his own, who are not his, who's not his own. He'll explain that. But his disciples are sitting here. Can you imagine eavesdropping on Jesus' prayer and hearing how he's talking to God about himself and how he's talking to God about you and how he's talking to God about the impact that he wants you to make on the world upon him dipping? Jesus praying and interceding on our behalf. And so Jesus opens up. That leads me to my first point. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. In the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. But although he prays for himself, his prayer for himself is not selfish. Because, see, Jesus' prayer for himself is going to benefit us. Stay with me. He says in verse 1, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Jesus' desire is that he would make the most of God's sovereign timing. Jesus, all the way throughout his ministry, would always say that my hour has not come. This, this, this issue of hour was a big thing in the ministry of Jesus Christ. It, his hour to die hadn't, hadn't come, but his hour for something else had come when he said his ultimate hour had come. He had many hours, but then he had an ultimate hour, a big hour. And I'm blown away by that because Jesus has, has a satisfaction with the will of God in such a way that he doesn't overstep his boundaries. And not only that, Jesus does something beautiful. Jesus, Jesus is patient with God's timing, and he doesn't move before God, and he doesn't move after God. His passion is that he'd move with God. He said, the hour has come. And one of the things that I'm seeing in, this, in, in Jesus' prayer, and him looking at how he patiently awaited his, the will of God to take place, and how he wanted to be in timing, many of us need to take our P's and Q's from this reality. Because in our age group, we're a very impatient group of people. We want everything right now. We want a job right now. We want a house right now. We want, we, want, we want to own our own business right now. We want to be married right now. We want a girlfriend right now. We want a boyfriend right now. We want loot right now. We want everything right now. We want everything to be what we'd like it to be fully realized right now. But Jesus understood something that's beautiful. He understood God's chronos. He understood God's timetable. And because he understood God's timetable, if God wasn't doing it at that particular time, that he didn't try to force anything to happen. He wait until his internal time clock lit up to the fact that God was moving. In Galatians 4, 4, it says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, God's timing. It says that Jesus Christ, the God man, the one who tucked his Shekinah, who tucked his justice, who tucked his everlasting, his eternality, his spirit into a body, and he was patient enough knowing past, present, and future and time, submitting himself to a human body and the relinquishing of his, the utilization of his attributes on his own, he waited for God's timing. 
I don't know about you, but if I, had, if I knew all that Jesus knew about everything, past, present, and future, first off, my, I bust a blood vessel and all of them in my brain. But number two, I would be, I would, I would be more impatient than I already am. And I would want it to happen. But the Bible says in Luke 2.52, a beautiful thing. It says, it says, Jesus Christ grew in grace and wisdom with both God and man. Wow. Wow. So Jesus, Jesus wasn't in a rush. Jesus spent 30 years, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. He spent 30 years learning what it meant to explain the gospel to the Jews. 30 years. And so what's beautiful about this section is his time. He says, glorify me that you might be glorified. He says, Father, the hour has come. What does it come for? Glorify your son um, that the son may glorify you. Um, show off who I am so that when I show off who I am, Everybody else may see who I am. In essence, Jesus is praying that the Father would keep him on the course with his mission and in doing so that he would maximize the glory of the Father. Jesus says, God, whenever your timing comes, whenever your divine timing comes, and and, and it's at hand right now, I want to maximize my ability to show you off as much as I can. I remember when it said that when, when when Joseph was in jail, and when Joseph was in jail, Joseph um, was, was, was I, I, I don't know where he was fully in relation to frustration or whatever, but it's interesting. When the, when the baker told Pharaoh that there was a God that could interpret his dream, it's an interesting verse. Read it sometime um, in, the, in the Joseph narratives from Genesis 37 to 50. Study his life. It's beautiful how he dealt with God's timing. Um, but, but, but at this point in time, it said, it, it points to the fact that when the baker had told Pharaoh, Pharaoh sent a messenger, probably Potiphar, and he came to his prison. He comes up and he says, he talks to Joseph and says, he has need of you. And then the text says that Joseph had already prepared himself for this timing. See, the issue that we, we must do is Jesus does something d- beautiful. He doesn't, he expects God's time. He doesn't sit lazily waiting for God's timing, but he prepares himself so that when God's timing comes, he can maximize the amount of glory that God can get. Many of us want God's timing without the preparation for what the timing is going to bring to pass. And so what Jesus does is Jesus it's saying, yo, I'm ready to glorify you, God. And matter of fact, I'm ready to glorify you in such a way that I, in, in, in you exalting me and putting me in my position or putting me in my role on the cross. He says, Lord, I just want to make sure that I maximize how I glorify you. But then he goes from then. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, talking to himself, talking about himself, to give eternal life to all whom you have given Jesus basically says that he desires to, in, in this time period, to make, and this is his desire, to make sure that he maximizes the glory of God, but not only to maximize the glory of God, but to properly stewardship, steward the power that God has given him. In other words, Jesus says, yeah, all authority is going to be given to me. Um, to, and, and, and particularly in this passage, I'm not the one he says after the resurrection, um, which we're going to talk about that in a second. But right here, he's talking about the power to save, the power to save. And so Jesus Christ is saying, yo, Lord, I am going to make sure that not only that you are glorified in a maximum way, but also I want to properly steward my role in the kingdom. I want to properly steward my powers when you give me exaltation. That's one of the things that we, we have to learn is is I, I don't know why I'm fascinated with this show. I'm fascinated with making it a band. I, I don't know why I'm fascinated with that show. But I, I just laugh at um, how cats on that show just kind of deal with their opportunity to sing. And how many of them, you know, they sing real, they, 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 one time they got caught sleeping, chilling out. 
And then, and then your man came up in there and was like, Dag, they don't really want to do this, do they? And so he puts them up immediately and begins to allow them to be, begin to sing again and say, yo, y'all seen cats were choking and carrying on. And, and in other words, they wanted the exaltation of a music career, but they didn't want to properly prepare to make sure that they were able to steward their voice in a music career. And one of the things that we need to be able to do is we need to steward, based on Jesus as our ultimate example, we, we, we must be in a place where we're stewarding just like Christ. Christ stewarded his power. He stewarded his power to save, and so should we steward our power to walk in his footsteps, to walk in his footsteps. Not only that, Jesus' focus, Jesus' focus remained loyal to the central purpose of his mission. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, and this is eternal life, that you, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a powerful verse. Very few times in the Gospels, when you hear Jesus talking, very few times he defines anything. When you look at Matthew 13, you'll hear him, like everybody wants to know what the kingdom is going to look like, define the kingdom. Jesus never defines the kingdom. He just explained it. He says the kingdom of heaven is like, stay with me, all of this is going somewhere. He said, he said, he said, they all, all of his disciples wanted to know when the kingdom was coming and how to define the kingdom. And Jesus just said, ah, let me see. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. In other words, he gave similes and metaphors to describe what the kingdom was like rather than pegging it in one uh, linear terminology. But here, Jesus seeks to lay out beautifully a definition of eternal life. This is what it means. Most of us, when we explain eternal life to people, we explain going to heaven. That's not what is explained in this verse. It doesn't say, this is eternal life, that you go to heaven and enjoy what God has for you. Jesus didn't say um, that eternal life is Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life. That's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is to know God and to know the one whom he sent. Wow. To know them equally. Oh, man. So eternal life is not, listen, don't take this as cognitive information only. It is relational. Eternal life is to eternally enjoy God. Now, to some people, that's real sad. Their whole continence falls. I mean, they're like, dang, that's what, that's what this thing all about, like being with God forever? Like getting to know him. Like I thought I was going to be sitting on 22s and sitting on 44s. And I thought I was going to have me a plaid out grill. I thought I was going to have my hair braided and I don't ever have to get it braided again because I got a new body. I mean, I thought I wasn't going to have to wash again. I thought I was going to get a new crib. I thought I was going to be able um, to hold hands walking down the streets and go, I mean, what's all this talk about knowing God? And I'm afraid that we have demoted salvation to a relationship with ourselves, with God's stuff. And we'd be satisfied with that. We'd be satisfied to have everything that God has for us, long as he'll just not chaperone our souls for eternity. Lord, leave us alone. Be on your throne. Be all in all. Be glorious. Be beautiful. But let me enjoy what you got for me. I, I, I mean, I mean, you could be there. Come on in, God. Let me get you some tea. Let me get, but not really enjoying him. And we're such an anthropocentric society, a man-centered society, that's a me-centered society, that even we've taken a false view of eternity and made it center on us rather than God and Jesus. God and Jesus, God the Father, because both of them are God, God the Father and God the Son invites us to eternally enjoy their attributes without being them. Now, now let me me break something down for you. See, to, to know God is both a process and an event. Let me explain that. See, it's an event in that you come to know him through Jesus Christ, initially through justification. 
However, our God is not like a pipsqueak. He's not like a small dude. He's not like localized. Our God is beefy with his eternal attributes. So listen, check this out. And getting to know God doesn't mean that you just get to know all who he is. It means that you spend eternally, eternal, you get eternal lessons on who God is while enjoying it. Now, don't think of school in eternity the same way you think of school now, hating and dreading to read, hating and... No, this is an enjoyable lesson because you've been renewed. Check me out. Stay with me. All of this is going somewhere. But what's beautiful about God is God is made up of a lot of stuff. Just because you look at a biblical theology or systematic theology book doesn't mean you know God. Check it out. Doesn't mean because you got passed a few words in Hebrew and Greek that you know God. It doesn't mean because you went to seminary, you know, no, that doesn't mean you know God. See, God, knowing God is a process and an event. And so God in his justice, in his grace, in his mercy, in his holiness, all of those are infinite. But individually, each one of them are infinite. So we're going to spend eternally We're going to spend our time eternally getting to know all of who God is. But the issue is each sector of God's perfections and his nature take an eternity by themselves to get to know. That means that if you want to get to know his justice, it's not just one. God's justice is the way. No, it takes an eternity to get. It's not just the bullprint. I'm going to read the bullprint and then the little word. No, God is more than that. It's a lot of words. The Bible says that the works of Jesus Christ are so huge that the world can't hold them. That wasn't even talking about his acts as deity, but his acts on earth. Imagine how much time that it takes to get to know the acts of Jesus Christ in eternity and time. It takes forever, fam. It takes forever. Matter of fact, we're not even talking about understanding the person of the Father, the person of the Son, the person of the Spirit by themselves, and how they utilize the attributes in their person. Oh, I got to stop. But I'm just telling you that this is relationship with God is an eternal thing, not a temporal thing. It takes an eternal. This is a huge cat. Nobody talks. There's no religion. There's no spiritual persuasion that has a God this huge. Yeah, he's, but somebody else's, their God is wrathful, but he's not gracious. He's not holy because he'll accept their works apart from Jesus. We have a big God. So getting in a so Jesus is praying this though. Jesus prays. Jesus prays. He, he says, and it's almost like Jesus is doing one prayer. He's proclaiming to his disciples the reality of what eternal life is. I got to move. I got to move. He goes on and he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. Dang. (laughs) Jesus, all the scholars call this proleptic language. Let me explain proleptic language. Proleptic language means you use the past tense to describe the whole of an event that has happened and is going to happen. So Jesus says, I've, I've, I've accomplished already what you told me to do, but he has in mind, look, I was slain before the foundations of the world. So he's going to the cross at this point. He's not at the cross yet, but in the mind of God, Christ's work was finished. He said, I came to earth to finish." Now look at what he says though. Now this is, now this is a scary prayer that Jesus prays next. Check out what he says. And now father, glorify me. In your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Somebody told me, I remember as I go out witnessing, people always tell me, nobody said that Jesus never said he was God. That's a lie. He just said it. He's pretty bold because, see, Isaiah 42, 8 says that God doesn't share his glory with anybody. He said, my praise I reserve for myself. But Jesus prays to say, he says, God, glorify me with the glory that we were sharing before I came to planet Earth. Jesus is asking 
Listen, listen, Jesus is not trying to graduate. Let me explain that. Jesus, this is not a graduation. This is not God rewarding Jesus here. See, some people, that's not, that's not, this is not a reward. All Jesus is saying, God, unveil, peel back the glory that I tabernacled in this flesh when I get up from the grave. He says, look, show them who I am. And what's so powerful about God is God doesn't eat. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't go to the bathroom. He doesn't need anybody to take care of him. He takes care of himself. And God would be pleased to bring this to class because Jesus is himself. That's going to go past you. Get it on the ride home. But Jesus is him. And because Jesus is him, he's pleased to do it because he's self-sufficient and he's willing to take care of himself. So he'll answer the prayer because Jesus is God. (laughs) So Jesus asked, well, look, God, restore to me what I forfeited. I didn't stop being God, but, 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 but God, help me to sniff the aroma of what it was like to be in the way we were in community. Before I came to earth, I want it back, God. I want to experience that all, all over again. So Jesus is clear about his mission. He's loyal to his mission. So he asked to be raised from the grave. But then he goes down to six. He says, and I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. I, I, you know, when I hear gave them to me, you know, my son. Me and my son have a, we, we love, I, I love giving my son stuff. You know, I, I love just giving him stuff. I try not to spoil him, but I love giving him stuff. And I was thinking about this as I was thinking about Jesus praying to the Father. He said, God, you gave them to me, and I took care of them. My son always, when I buy him an action figure or a toy or whatever he likes, he'll just, after a while of having it, he'll just walk back up to me and say, Daddy, you gave me this? And, um, and they almost make a brother choke up when he say that. I'd be like, son, stop playing with daddy. Stop playing with you. Go on over there and play somewhere, boy. And, um, but, but he said, he says, daddy, you gave this to me. And he said, or he'll say, who gave this to me? And I'll say, I, I gave it to you, Manny, um, by the Lord's grace through stewarding his resources. He said, thank you, daddy. And he'll walk away. And I notice that when he goes away, it, when he knows that I gave him a particular toy, he tries to treat it a certain way. And he tries to treat it like he believes that I would treat it. Because daddy gave it to him. Jesus in this passage says, Father, you gave me these people and I've taken care of them like you would take care of them. And in my departure, take care of them, God. Wow. Wow. How does it feel to be, a, be stewarded by Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ taking care of your soul, even when you're struggling. He's taking care of your soul. That's powerful because many of us feel like the trials and tribulations that God allow us to go through is not good care. But it's a part of his care system. And Jesus says, I have taken care of all that you've given me. And he says, those who you've chosen out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He says, now they have, they, now, um, he says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. He says, for I have given them the, uh, the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I have come, I've came from you and that, I mean, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus Christ proclaims in this passage, Jesus Christ proclaims beautifully in this passage, the relationship between himself and his disciples, how he's taken care of them, and how he's properly stewarded his mission as the son of God on planet earth. But then he goes down and he talks about something beautiful. Check it out. It says, he said, I'm praying for them. Brings me to my last point. Jesus desires, Jesus desires, I'm sorry, Jesus entrusts his disciples to the Father. You know, 
This is an interesting section right here. I'm going to pass the deuce. Pass the deuce is going to do verses 20 through 26. I'm going to stop at verse 19. It's a lot in this passage, and I'm going to have to sink it in on some particular things that I think we need to focus on. But I stop here because I'm interested. Jesus entrusts himself to the Father. Then he entrusts his disciples to the Father. You know, this is interesting because I'm, I'm around a lot of pastors, and I'm around a lot of people who call themselves disciple makers. And a lot of them are doing excellent jobs in ministering to God's people. But one of the things that is always a struggle when God lets you into people's issues, when God lets you into their problems, because every believer that becomes a disciple maker, the people who you disciple, they're going to let you, if if they're good disciples, are going to let you into the world of their issues. And many disciples complain a lot about the people they're pouring into. They gossip about them. They talk about, well, you know, he not, boom, 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 she's not this. She, and just complain about, but Jesus does something powerful here. Jesus, I mean, if I had, I mean, if I had the disciples Jesus had, I'd be complaining a lot about him. I mean, cats doubting who he is. Jesus getting in his grill like he the disciple maker and Jesus ain't. I mean, Jesus didn't go before the father like, yo, father, I mean, I'm sick of Peter. You know what I'm saying? Peter is the dumbest disciple I've ever, I've ever had in my life. I mean, Peter always opened He got a big mouth. I mean, I, I mean, if, if, as soon as you restore me, I'm going to slap him with my, with my with, I'm just going to trip on him. Thomas don't believe anything I say. Philip always asking to see you, like, show us the father and that'll be enough for us. Like, I'm sick of these cats. But Jesus has a motley crew. He has a group of entrepreneurs, um, a group of, 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 of black power guys who are zealots, like black power dudes. Let's rush the kingdom. He got dudes that always want to make money. He has, he has, a, he has a, a politician with him. A t- he has a group. He has a crazy. He has two cats, J- James and John. Tumble. Yo, I'm telling you, man, as soon as Jesus let me sit at his right hand, I'm lighting cats up with lightning as soon as I can. And so, so he called them the sons of thunder. I mean, they mama's boys too. Mama talking about, I, I mean, Jesus, I'm just saying, they've been walking with you for a while. Can they say, I, can I have one on your right, one on your left, and you know, let me just sit at your feet. And I just all chill together and just start tearing up the kingdom. I mean, it was a crazy crew that he had. <laughs> he had a crazy crew. But Jesus doesn't complain. He prays for them. Wow. He lays them before the Father. He lays his disciples before the Father, trusting God with their deficiencies, trusting God to be their eternal caretaker, to give them the spirit, to give them the word, to take care of them and not complain about their weaknesses. Some of us got so many issues. If we just think about one another's issues without prayer, we'll just get real depressed. Or if you admit it, you got issues too. You always talk about somebody else got issues. But man, there needs to be a spiritual mirror put in front of your face. You got issues too, fam. And so with all of us having issues, this prayer, even though Jesus will say in verse 20, he'll say something beautiful. He said, this I ask for all. So all of this prayer is not just for the disciples that are there, but all of us. Listen to what our Savior prays for us. He prays for us. And I want to explain this section because everybody's always asking, what is the will of God for my life? What am I supposed to do? What have I been put here for? Have I, put here to, have I been put here to be a teacher? Have I been put here to be a coach? Have I been put here to start a youth center? Have I been put here to start a business? What have I been put here to, before, for? That's not why you've been put here. Those are byproducts of why you've been put here. Jesus prays a vision for how he wants us to walk in while we were put here. Are y'all still with me? And so he says, I am praying for them. He says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given to me. Jesus says in John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father has given to me shall come to me, and the one that comes to me I shall certainly not cast out. Verse 39, he says, And all that you've given me, it is your will that I lose nothing but raise up on the last day. 
So Jesus says something powerful. He says this. He says, Father, I'm not praying for the people in the world. I'm praying for your elect ones. This is a sacred section. This is holy ground. Stay with me. He says, I'm praying for your elect ones. Now, what's powerful is a lot of people say, well, how come they don't pray for the world? I mean, Jesus don't love the world. Well, God so loved the world that he gave. However, Jesus' prayer for his elect team is going to impact the world. So he wants to make sure that he pours his prayer not into the world, but into the people who he's passing the baton to as his covenant community of committed disciples to impact the world. So that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus prayed that you would impact the world. Jesus didn't pray for us to live lives for ourselves. He prayed that our lives would be centered on him. I got to move on. Come on, let's, let's move through this. I want to preach through it. Come on, look. He says, I'm not praying for those for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. He talks about the sharing of the community of disciples by the Father and the Son. And that the Spirit, he prayed in chapter 16, will breathe into them life. So the triune God works together as co-owners of the community of faith to blitz the world with the glory of Christ. Stay with me. He says in verse 10, he says, all mine are yours. And yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Wow. Wow, Jesus talks about the fact that the, com- the covenant community of committed disciples, not just people on the fringes, but committed disciples, he says, I am glorified among them. Now keep going, watch what he says. He says, I am no longer in the world. Well, Jesus right now is still in the world, but he's praying as if he's already been raised from the grave. Powerful. Because he sees it as a done deal. He says, but I... I'm coming to you. So Jesus says, I need you to take care of them. That's what he says in the next verse. He says, Holy Father. Man, I don't have time to unpack something that Jesus, this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus Christ calls the Father, Holy Father. I'll unpack this once we get in verses 17 through 19. He says, Holy Father. He says, keep them in your name. Now, there are two ways that this can be taken. It can be taken to be keep them in the power of your name or keep them loyal to your name. Well, if we look at the context and you look at from verses, not that the, not that the latter, the, the former is not true, the power of your name. But based on this context, verses 6 through 8. Jesus talks about their loyalty and his loyalty to them. So it probably is pointing to them being loyalty, loyal to the name of God. Now, he said to your name. That's interesting. He doesn't say keep them loyal to my name. He said keep them loyal to your name. He's not talking about the sacred name of God. This used the way we translate it, Lord. He's not talking about uh, Adonai or Yahweh. He's not talking about either, either one of those in this passage. He's talking about Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus' name is owned by God. <laughs> in Luke one thirty one, when Gabriel came to Mary, God said through Gabriel, And his name shall be called Jesus. The father named Jesus. Philippians chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. I'm sorry. Verses 5 through 11. Talk about the injection of the name of all of what God is into the name of Christ. So God the father owns the name of Jesus. Jesus says, keep them in your name. In other words, keep them loyal to your name. What name in the Bible always has to do with character, always, for most part, has to do with character. So he says, keep them loyal 
to the characteristics that you've injected into your name. In other words, keep them loyal to faithfulness. Keep them loyal to justice. Keep them loyal to grace. Keep them loyal to mercy. Keep them loyal to righteousness. Keep them loyal to spirituality. Keep them loyal. Keep them loyal to your name. God's prayer, Jesus' prayer for us is that we be loyal to his name. Not loyal to our own missions. Not, not, not loyal to our own dreams. Because many of us can't join anything that doesn't impact us. Most of us want to be involved with people or go places. Or, or if, it doesn't, if it doesn't touch us, we don't want a part of it. Although the name of Christ has touched us, it pushes us and launches us beyond us to a loyalty beyond anything we could ever, ever imagine. Keep them loyal to your name. He says that they may be one. Listen, this is, this is interesting. This is interesting. He asked, Jesus asked, he said, Can your, my, I want my name to be a uniform. Like a lot of religions have uniforms, head coverings, outfits that let you know, hey, they're this, they're that. Christianity doesn't have a clothing uniform. It has a soul uniform. And, 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 and I remember when I was in elementary school, I mean, junior high school, I first, I, my, my parents, I, you know, growing up in the hood, man, back then, you know, kids now, they wear uniforms all the time. But back then, you know, you had to wear a uniform. It, 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 usually kind of trouble around the way. Everybody come back with their new school. Everybody go school shopping, got their brand spanking new gear. You know, the, uh, the, the, you know, the first Jordans came up, cats rocking Jordans. And back then we wore champion T-shirts and, uh, and, um, and, and, and um, AJ jeans and major damage and all of those. Y'all don't know nothing about that. But um, and, and we, we, we wear all these different outfits. And, um, and, they wear, and, and I come from school. I had on a, a light blue shirt with a clip-on tie, light blue shoes, and some stacks that my mom had bought me uh, from, uh, from the thrift store. So I come home and they, they, I mean, I remember one time in particular, I was on, I was on what's called Georgia Avenue up the street from Howard University. And I'm standing there, man, with my cats from Catholic school. And man, a whole group of people jumped us just cause we were, I mean, I mean, jumped us because we weren't from, uh, they said, oh, they some suckers. They from Catholic school. You know, they don't do nothing but study and listen to nuns and fathers and brothers. Let's, I mean, and so they, they tried to jump us. Um, but they ran up on something. No, I'm joking. But, um, <laughs> But uh, <laughs> it was a little rough, y'all. Y'all don't want to see that videotape. But, um, but, but, but in other words, the uniform identified them with something in particular and a stereotype. This should, Christianity, we need to be reintroduced to the world stereotypically married as Siamese twins to the character of Jesus. But you go to this church, you hear something different. You go over there, you hear something different. You go over, and there's no uniformity that makes Christianity Christianity. But Jesus prays for our oneness. And not our oneness in how big the church is, how small the church is, whether we sing praise and worship or hymns. That wasn't his call to uniformity. His call to uniformity was loyalty to the character of his name. His name, his name, his name. He says, listen, when they, God, when they run into this crew, this motley crew of people, they're from different backgrounds, different cultures, but God helped one thing that they may be known for is the character of loyalty to my name. And the issue is over in John 15, that character of loyalty is expressed through how we treat one another, how we love one another. And so Jesus calls us to be loyal to his character through loving one another. And in order to love one another, we got to be around one another. Let's keep moving. He said, and then, then, then he says, um, he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction um, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they that they may have um, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. There it is again. We've been talking for the last few weeks. Jesus keeps bringing up joy. He just keeps bringing it up. And remember, what does anybody remember what our definition of joy was based on the upper room discourse? Yell it out. Say that again. 
Uh-huh. Satisfaction with the Lord through trials. What else? Huh? Hope. What else? Joy is a barometer. Anybody know what a barometer is? Joy is the barometer of the Christian life, of the Christian utilized, like she was talking about, like they were talking about, to tell us whether or not we're in the will of God or not. If you're not satisfied with God, you're joyless. If you're always complaining, you're joyless. If you never see God's face, you're joyless. Jesus prays that while we continue his mission on planet Earth, that we would find satisfaction in that mission no matter what lot that mission deals to us. Now, many times we are making decisions based on the lot we want. But God, because we're owned by him, we have been bought with a price and our lives are no longer our own. What happens is, is the lot that the father has dealt us, God will, no matter how much you seek your own, will bring you back on course through difficulty so that our joy, and that's what we talked about last week, week before last, is that our joy may be fulfilled. So that's how loyalty is lived out. In relation to Jesus, so Jesus prays that as we continue his mission in the world, that we are actually satisfied with that mission. But then he goes down and he lays it out beautifully. Famous part of the passage. Jesus' desire is that disciples are insulated by the word of God, yet not isolated from the world. Insulated by the word of God, yet not isolated by the world. Verse 17. I mean, 15, I'm sorry. He says, do not ask that you, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, powerful. He says that they, uh, he says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays that we're insulated by the word of God, that we would be set aside by the word of God. What's powerful is that he said, keep us from the evil one. The assumption is, is that the evil one is going to come against us. So Jesus prays. And then listen to what he doesn't, he, he doesn't pray that the Lord not let the evil one into our life to do stuff. Look at what he prays. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. He didn't pray that he would keep the evil one from us, but he prayed that we would be kept from the evil one. That's key because God through his sovereign and providential power allows the enemy into the life of the believer. Ask Paul, ask Job, ask, ask David, ask many in the Bible who had the eternal hedge of protection removed so that the enemy could come into different layers of their life. However, God has given paradigms and principles, practices and precepts to help us, to help us in the midst of that resistance. It's one of those things. So he said, keep them from the evil one. But then Jesus says, sanctify them. Stop there. This is interesting because when you go back to law, prophets, writings, or what we uh, Gentile Christians call the Old Testament, right here, um, Jesus is utilizing terminology. This is where you're going to see that Jesus is more than a high priest in this passage. We know that Jesus is prophet, priest, king. However, he's high priest. But the, the, in this passage, he plays an interesting role. In Leviticus 16, read that on your own time, you'll see the consecration of Aaron. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 6 says that we are after the, that Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. Not a temporal priesthood, but an eternal priesthood. However, he still utilizes all of the Aaronic priesthood and the Levitical priesthood were shadows of the, the physical form of what Jesus was going to fully fulfill. Are you with me? Stay with me on this. So Jesus in this passage plays three roles. He plays the role of high priest. He plays the, he plays the role of consecrating priest. But, but, but listen, he plays the role of high priest. He, pray, he plays the role 
of the sacrifice. <laughs> he plays the role of high priest sacrifice and the temple where the sacrifice takes place. This is crazy. Because Jesus says, in three days, destroy this temple, build it back up. Jesus is the new temple. We are his eternal temple. Jesus, high priest, he prays sanctifying language because he asks, because the priest is supposed to sanctify the vessels for the tabernacle. So that in order that the discipling community could be sanctified for the father's youth, Jesus asked that they be set aside for a particular mission and task. For God's temple. Stay with me. But then Jesus becomes the sacrifice. But check it out. He says, sanctify them in truth. He says, don't just sanctify them any old kind of way. He says, insulate them, but don't allow them to be isolated from the world. It kind of reminds me of a Superman cartoon. When Superman, Superman one time, you know, Superman, y'all know he got heat vision. He got got x-ray vision. You know, he got super strength, super breath, and he can, and he got heat vision. You know what I'm saying? But what's, what's his Achilles heel? Yeah. One time he knew his enemies had kryptonite. So that he can go on his mission and stay in the battle, he put on a suit. And the suit was to protect him from the kryptonite so that his power can still be maximized in the fight. What Jesus is praying here is that we would be insulated from the temptations of the kryptonite of the enemy but still be empowered by him to not have our power lessened so we can potently live out the mission of Jesus Christ in the world. And so we're insulated, not isolated. Many Christians, when you, when you hear them, we're supposed to be in the world, not of the world. And, and, you, and if you talk to different Christians, everybody explains how that practically looks differently. Christendom or traditional Christianity, like we talked about a few weeks ago, either says, either they be separatists, they separate themselves from everything from the world and don't ever share the gospel with the world, don't live among the world. Then on the other side is people who they just indulge in the world. That's the conformist. But we talked about being transformers. Jesus Christ says, not that we would, not that like dress makes you not like the world unless, only, only time dress doesn't make you like the world is if as a female or a dude, you are being promiscuous in your dress. However, However, it, it, or, or the dress promotes in that culture a particular idolatrous format. But we as Christians are called to vitally engage in the world. And Jesus says, listen, he says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus says, the same way you caused me to come, become flesh, dwell in the world for your mission so I now commission them to do the same, to be incarnational missionaries. And we're going to talk about that when we get on our series on the church. But then he finally says, he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. Wow. This is powerful. Jesus, as high priest, consecrates the tabernacle utensils, the believers, <laughs> with, with, with his utensils. For mission. You know, over in Second uh, Timothy 2, um, over in Romans 9, 23 through 25, um, we are called vessels of honor or vessel, vessels of proper usage. Jesus sanctifies us as vessels of proper usage. Now he does something powerful. He consecrates himself. He doesn't need to, but Jesus Christ as high priest, consecrates himself as high priest and sacrifice. And in this context, he says, he says, I consecrate myself in order that they may be sanctified. In other words, in order that they may be properly set aside for mission, I set myself aside for the cross. Jesus sanctifies himself, sets himself aside, consecrates himself to be a worthy sacrifice of God. Now, if you go back to Leviticus They couldn't have any blemishes on them before they were sacrificed. That was a picture of Jesus Christ being internally perfect in character and soul and spirit and mind and body and heart and everything. And Jesus Christ sets himself aside for the cross. And he says, and when I die on the cross, this is going to set them aside for mission. We can't do anything in our lives as Christians outside of the cross. That's why we sing the cross. That's why we proclaim the cross. That's why we remind ourselves of the cross. Because the cross 
is the central piece that gives us the grace for mission in the world to actually work. And when most people hear mission, they only think foreign country. That's a part of it, us going into all of the world. But you have an identity as a missionary to go right now outside of these doors and wherever you go, you are a missionary. Because the role of the missionary, evangelism, listen, evangelism is, is explaining and telling the people the gospel. But mission, mission or being missional means, means, means simply understanding people before you share the gospel with them. And so he calls us to be incarnational missionaries. Hebrews 2.17 says he had to become like his brothers in all respects. And so it, that's powerful in that he allowed himself not to become like the world in character, but he had the garb of the world for the purpose of relating properly to the world. So a few things. How will this prayer change our investment in the world? How will it change your investment? How will it change how you switch up your game in understanding your purpose beyond vocation, um, and beyond a ministry area, but, but respond as an investment of your comprehensive life. Not only that, how will we grab a hold of Christ's vision? Christ's vision, Christ's vision is that we'd be set aside properly for the Father's use for his mission to proclaim the gospel in every area of life. So how will this impact our prayer lives? How will Christ's prayer impact us? And I just pray that today that we learn from Christ's prayer as we see his vision, his vision, his vision. And, oh, some of us wonder, why hasn't Christ been meeting me in my prayers and me where I, what I want to do? And that's because we were playing, praying our mission, not his. And so God is calling us today to switch up our game. The mission of God is not just for the street team. The mission of God is not just for the pastors or the elders or some deacons or some special group of people. It's for the gathered community who mount up together on mission with Christ through both life and lips to walk in Christ's prayer. I, I, I commend you uh, to the grace of God that today that you would take your baton. I don't care if you're a stay-home mom. I don't care if, 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 if you're a single mom. I, I, I don't care if, if, if you're a cat that's looking for a job. I don't care if you're older in years, younger in years, in high school. If you are a believer, Jesus Christ is passionate about presenting all of us complete in Christ. And there is a call on your life. Not just to call them. I, I don't like the way we, especially in, the, in those predominantly black churches, talk about they call to preach. That's a limited calling. You were already called before you, quote, unquote, saw a vision and got called to preach. The whole community of the disciples are called to be a proclaiming community. And we're supposed to proclaim Christ and how we love one another and how we live in the world. So you are called as a missionary. Now you got to get on duty. Now you got to switch up your game, fam, so that you can live in light of the cross, to live in light of the gospel. You know, you might be saying, well, I'm going to stay home, mama. I stay with my kids. Yeah, you're a missionary. When you take your kids out and your kids aren't acting a fool, you're being a missionary. When you're, you're, well, I'm just a husband and I just work a nine to five. Uh-uh. How, how am I a missionary? When you take your children to games, you're a missionary. When, uh, how am I, uh, as a single person, how, 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 am I, how am I supposed to be a missionary? I'm just a single dude that just come, and I just, I'm just working, I'm in school. You're a missionary if you're a student in the classroom, on your job, the way you live out Christian ethics. Everything you do and say says something. Even when you don't say anything, it's saying something. So while you're in, the, in whatever place you are in life, you're not to isolate yourself from God's people or God's world. Because the world is God's world, not the devil's world. The Bible says that God has created everything to be shared by those who believe and know the truth. First Timothy 4. He not only said that, but he says, he says anything done without faith is sin. Romans 14, the last verse. So we're called. We're called. This world, when we step ground, God wants to recop the entire cosmos for his name. Will you be a part of his community that does that? Or will you be a complainer who sits on the lines and talk about what the church is not doing, what pastors aren't doing, what people aren't doing? Will, no, will you be a missionary? Will you carry on the legacy of Jesus? Will you carry it on? It was interesting. I was looking at a paper um, the other day, and I saw Brother Joel and his team 
up in the thing. He was in there. And, and I mean, in, in him leading that team, leading them in Christian principles, leading them, that, I mean, missionary. It, it, these kids won't recognize how much that will impact their lives forever. No matter where you are, remember, you're on duty, and your Christianity can't be a secret. I don't want to let them know because I hear how they talk about Christianity. No, no, no. There are no secret agents, fam. No, if you deny him, he'll deny you. So we're called to be insulated, not isolated. And so I pray that today we would submit to the dream of Jesus. I know that some of you have gone to school and you don't feel like you're in your vocation. Listen, your mere working vocation is not your vocation based on your degree. <laughs> your vocation is based on repping God in your location. That's key. And I pray today, I pray today that we would embrace our calling, that we would not look for another calling. But look how God has called all believers. Uh, some of us say, well, I'm not an evangelist. Well, nobody called you to be the evangelist as a gift, but you are called to do evangelism by being equipped to do the work of evangelism. So, again, we, we got we to gotta live this reality out as believers. Are y'all getting this? Father, we want to we wanna be on mission with you. Although I know we talk about that a lot and people kind of.